But Father, I thank you this morning that your invitation is to put our feet on solid ground. That you are saving God who longs to draw us out of the cul-de-sacs we find ourselves going down and put us on the narrow road that leads to life. For your way is life. Would you come afresh upon each one of us this morning? Would you reveal yourself to us? Would you put us on the narrow road? Thank you that you're compassionate, you're merciful, and you love us. Amen. Um, this wasn't what I was going to say, but one of the striking things about this passage is if you're someone who likes your scripture, you know, dramatic and a bit kind of manly, so to speak, traditionally, there's death, there's fighting, there's kind of aggro, and there's gardening, because uh, it's about a vineyard, which to me is not a vision that I particularly like to spend a lot of time going down, but I'm sorry for that irreverence, but we'll keep going as well through that. But I wonder this week, as we've thought about this, as I've been thinking about this and as we're approaching this passage that's quite a dramatic passage, is this. I wonder how much thought have you given of God this week? How much thought have you given to whether I know, God is existent in the world? To whether you want to spend any time finding out anything more about God? About discovering anything or push it further, actually spending some time with Jesus, to read his word, to sit at his feet, to listen to him, to be in God's presence. Or what is, a, if you look back at your time, I spent, I seem to have spent my professional life doing infinite training courses, but one of which is the many different things that they did with things like, you know, do a timeline of your life during a week. And look how you spend it. Where do you spend your time? What do you spend it on? What do you spend your mind consumed with? Is it Facebook, Instagram, Twitter? Is it communicating with friends? Is it just working? Or is it just a sense of exhaustion, of the struggle of trying to make sense of your life and the things that it entails? But all of us know the struggles of our lives, know the struggles of what it means to live. But my question this morning very simply is this. Where's God at work in your life? Where is God at work in your life? And do you notice him? How much would it take for God to get your attention? How much would it take for the creator of the universe to actually come to you for you to hear his voice in whatever way you hear it, and to call on your life again and bring you to your senses. All year we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke, and we're getting towards the end, for those of you who are kind of excited about that, uh, but actually we're getting towards the kind of number things as we do it. And we've been looking at the person of Jesus, and really, actually that's at the heart of things for us this morning about who you think Jesus is. And is Jesus worth your attention this morning? 
been said by a number of different people that we live in an age of psychology. And the textbook talk of psychology and psychological forces, a way of trying to describe our behaviours, our choices. You know, what drives your life this morning? And one of the problems each one of us have this morning is this, is that we have different forces, different things that drive our lives. For example, you know, you want to be a great husband, father, mother, whatever it is, grandfather, grandmother. And you think, you know, that's, that's a focus in my life. And I want to do that really well. But then at the same time, you've got to work. And you've got to do your job well. And it's what you feel called to. And then you've got all these other interests that you have that you want to pursue. And then you've got children to look after. You want to be a good father or mother or whatever it is. And actually those things, those forces take us in different directions. And what the, the books and psychology books talk about is that what we end up doing is we try and repress some of those things that go on in our lives. As we try and reach for all those things, but realize we can't do all of them. I know lots of people would say, and lots of the marketing says, you can have it all. Well, the reality is, and the, the substance of our lives is, we can't. And one of the subjects, one of the things, outputs of that is, so many of us are consumed by anxiety and fear and pain because we look at what we've called to do and we think, how on earth do I do that? How on earth do I navigate that? And so what we do, we end up repressing some of the forces in our life to help us to cope. It's one of the ways we cope. Why am I talking about that? Well, the Bible talks about repression too, but he talks about it, the Bible talks about it in a different way. He says so the Bible talks about it, and this is very dramatic language, but it's the heart of our passage this morning is this. It says underneath your anger, underneath your frustration, underneath lots of the things that you find in your life driving behavior, underneath all those is, is basically a hostility and anger at God. That underneath all the stuff of your life, there is a hostility or an anger towards God. And the Bible talks about the fallen human heart as a way not just that the heart is indifferent to God, but there's a hostility to God. So Paul, writing to the Romans, says the natural mind is hostile towards God in Romans 8. It will not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. So whilst each one of us this morning can celebrate the fact that we're made in the image of God, of the creator God who's good, bearing his image to the world, the fall means that there is a problem in this world with sin, with evil, with brokenness that affects each one of us in all sorts of different ways. And often we seek to repress that. And that's what this parable at heart is about and gets to the substance of. And what we're going to do is going to just look at some of the relationships in this parable this morning. If you want to have it open in front of you, I'm just going to look at the relationships going on between it. So firstly, look at the relationship between the tenants and the owner in this vineyard. Now, the tenants are there to tend the vineyard for the owner. They're there to tenant it for the owner's profit and for his word. The owner has bought the vineyard, invested in it, planted the vineyard. It was the owner's risk and the owner's investment. And the tenants will get their pay, will get what's been agreed as part of it. But the thing about this is in the relationship between the tenants and the owner is this. 
is tenants can't treat the vineyard the way they want to. And Jesus, remember, is here talking to the religious leaders of Israel. And you can go back to Isaiah 5, or you can go back to Jeremiah 2, and you can look also at Psalm 80. And you'll see this. Jesus is addressing the religious leaders of the time. And what we know is that it's common when we go back to those things, is that Israel is taught about being God's vineyard. This is a picture that the people at the time would recognize very clearly. God had given Israel many things, his people many things. He'd given them a homeland, he'd given them the law, he'd given them his word, and he'd given them the temple. Yet these same religious leaders who'd been given so much by God were seen as tenants, not owners. And it was their job, the religious leaders' jobs, to govern Israel for God. Now, for each one of us this morning, uh, as we're sat here, each one of us will be sat here knowing that we each have a biological life. We're still here this morning, so I can say that with confidence. Each one of us has an emotional life. Each one of us has a social life. Each one of us will have unique gifts and unique talents. Each one of us will have the unique gift of a unique life. And we'll all have a certain amount of power to do good with that life, to make a unique contribution to God's world. But each one of us is a tenant farmer. We're the tenant, not the owner of our lives. Now what we see in this parable is the tenants begin to act like owners. They don't want to listen to the messengers that the owner sends. And what the, what the Bible tells us is it's the nature of the fallen human heart to think of ourselves as the owners of our lives that we have. Now, I know as I say that this morning, that this isn't a particularly popular view in our current society, and particularly maybe even more so in a place like Bath. I mean, for example, you have a mind this morning. Well, you can decide what you believe. You've got a good mind. Just believe what you want. You have relationship power to make relationships. You have a sexual desire. Go and do what you want with that. You have possessions. You have stuff. Do what you want with that. I know all the self-help books in our society says, act like an owner. Do what you want. But the Bible says, no, you're a tenant. You're a tenant. And the secret to a good life is to behave like your God's tenants, to live like your God's tenant. Now, I know some of us this morning, as I'm talking to some, some of you are incredibly smart people, successful people. You've got a great educational background. You've been successful financially or relationally or in all sorts of other ways. You might have a great career. And the thing to say is this, the temptation when we've had success is this. I did it. I'm the secret of my success. That's a tenant acting like an owner. Now, I know this is a wider conversation, but I'm just going to put this in this morning. One of the things is, and I am someone who went to public school for a period of my life, but when I, Joe and I came to Bath and went to Beach and Cliff um, School, one of their values is to, to grow independent boys. My heart shudders at that. 
my heart shudders at that. Because but bottom line, although there's a lot of goodness in that, a good deal of intentions in this, beneath it sits this. I don't need your help this morning. I'm called to do it myself. And that's a vision, a very singular life. The Bible says we're not called to live in independence and self-sufficiency, whereas our condition is one of dependence and relationship with God and with one another. We don't have to see it. But actually, if we constantly live while we live in independence in this world, the natural conclusion is we will find ourselves alone and get ourselves in a right old mess. But I don't, uh, don't underestimate how difficult it is to live in community. But here's where the conflict comes once we recognize that. Is there are two different motivational forces going on in the relationship between this owner and the tenants. Is this On the one hand, what you have is, you know, we know that we'd really like to be tenants this morning. And we've got lots of gifts, got lots of abilities. I'd like to make my mark and I'd like to do it my way. But on the other side, we also know that we're not called to do that. And we find it very hard to admit that actually the very idea of a God who won't let us to be in complete control of our lives and do our own thing. I want to be an owner. I know there's that temptation in my life. I want to be in control. Yet, we become troubled. We mess things up. So what the first relationship in this passage shows us is this is that we're called to be in relationship as tenants, not owners. But we long to be owners. Secondly, let's have a look at the relationship between the tenants and the messengers, what you see in this passage. You notice the owner sends repeated messengers uh, to these people in the vineyard. And, you know, through a period of time, they beat them up. And what does this tell us? Well, don't forget that the immediate thrust of this parable is to remind the religious leaders uh, that God had sent them over the many, many years. God had sent them prophets over many years to tell them how to tend the vineyard of Israel. But they ignored them. They ignored the messages over many, many, many years, over many, many, many messages. Read the book of Jeremiah sometime, and you'll see them literally beat them up. But we also see God amongst this. He's incredibly gracious and merciful and compassionate. And he doesn't just give you one chance to say, do you know what? 50 years ago, I sent you a messenger, didn't listen, that's it, done. Again and again, he sends repeated messengers into our lives, longing to get us to hear his voice and to see what he's going to say. And so how does God do that for us in our own lives? There are lots of ways God may be seeking to speak to you this morning. It may be through the church. It may be through this church or church you've been in in the past. You can say, do you know, I can point to those points in my life in the past where God really spoke to me. I know he did. It may be through an individual friend who's incredibly committed to you. A Christian friend who just constantly is trying to bring encouragement and God's word to you. It may be just through an encounter, a random encounter with someone on the bus, that you have a conversation from nowhere, and you think, you know, God was in that. He was seeking to get my attention. Or actually, even more that's more difficult, 
and particularly in the context of where we sit today with some of the difficult things going on in people's lives. Sometimes when a near tragedy or a tragedy comes to you, God is knocking to say, I want to speak to you. I want to get your attention about what's really important. It might be frustration in your life. It might be the life you've been disappointed in relationships. It might be constantly frustrated that the hopes and dreams you've had for your life are not materializing. And God is longing to get your attention this morning. Because we're not ultimately in control of our lives. Let me say something this morning. I regularly have people who come to me and who try to show me that because their life is so full of troubles, so full of difficulties, so full of frustration, that God somehow doesn't love them and they shouldn't have to believe in a God because their life is full of mess in some form. And actually the thrust of the argument here is opposite. That in spite of all what the self-help book, let me try and say that in English, in spite of what the self-help books say, you will never ultimately control your own life. We can each set our goals, we can each set our plans, we can each set our agendas, we can each say we'll decide, and many of those things are good things. But in the end, in the absolute end, we're a tenant, not an owner. And if life, in fact, in your own life, as you look at that, if life, you're somebody who's constantly frustrated that your life won't go the way you think you know is best and it seems to resist, or maybe God is saying to you, well, maybe you aren't the owner of your life. Maybe actually God is. And he's longing to get you to say, I'm a tenant. What we know is life is a gift from God and God calls us to turn that life with love and with care in relationship to him. And this morning, although there are many wonderful gifts and abilities and interests that God will have given each one of us in all sorts of different ways, but we're called to live for his pleasure, by his word, and for his fruitfulness and his profit. We're going to spend next week in the service talking a little bit about where we are overall as a church in terms of money and other things. But do you see your whole life? as a gift from God in which you can choose to serve God in all sorts of different ways. It might be in your workplace, but it may also be in giving things to the church, giving some of your time and your talents. And the Lord is saying this morning through this passage, I keep sending messengers into your life. But are you listening? But are you listening? So let me ask you a really personal question this morning. Are you listening to the messengers God is sending into your life? Not last year, not last decade, not last century, but today. Are you interested in the messengers God is sending into your life? Or are you really just kicking them, beating them up? and send him on the way while you get on with your plan, your agenda, what you want to do with your life. And the thing is this, and I can attest many times over my life where I've been in a similar circumstance, is this. We can say, you know, I want to get in the driver's seat. 
We're a little bit like an eight-year-old who wants to get in a car and says, I want to drive. Well, you can't really see over the top of the car itself as you career through life making a complete car crash of things. The inevitability is you will end up self-destructing. And God is calling you. God is sending his messengers says, this morning said, would you please give me the steering wheel back of your life? Would you please give me the steering wheel back from your life? How are you treating God's messengers? It may be through God's word. It may be taking, spending time with others in prayer. It may be all sorts of ways you can do that. But where is it shown in your life? God is calling each one of us back into and joining life groups, whatever. This week we were doing Alpha, and Joe's attested, and Alistair shared. It's been a particularly tough season for personally over a period of time. And we're listening to Alpha this week, who's on prayer. And this was a quote from Koi Ten Boom that really struck me again. Koi Ten Boom, many of you will know, was, suffered hugely during the war at the hand of others. And she said this, she said this. She said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the driver. And I know that's for me. Thirdly, let's look at the relationship uh, to the son. Finally, the owner sends his son. And all that growing hostility, all that resistance to the messengers who've gone before actually erupts and they literally kill the son. And what we're seeing here is the Bible shows us that underneath all our cruelty to each other, and our complaints about our life and the self-pity about that we exude in all sorts of different ways, is an anger at the idea that we're not in charge of our lives and actually we know what's best for us. Yet the one time in history, the one time in history, God made himself physically vulnerable before the world, sending his only one and perfect son. What happened? We jumped on him, we kicked him, we beat him, we tortured him, and ultimately killed him. Jesus says in John 15, where he quotes the great messianic psalm of Psalm 69, they hated me without a cause. We will not and we cannot often admit to that such strong language of hatred towards God. Why? Because it talks about we don't want to surrender our life to God's control in some ways. But the only way we know we can do that is actually we have a revelation and by the Holy Spirit we encounter God afresh and we receive God as a saviour, as being made a new creation, new birth. That's what it takes to recognise the hostility that's the heart of our condition without God. And I'll see, I know that's a really strong statement and when I've chatted occasionally to people putting it in that kind of language, very occasionally, the general response to me is this. He said, Tim, just get serious. You're being stupid. Yeah, I'm ambivalent about God. I'm a bit agnostic about God. You know, I might choose to disobey God. But it's absolutely wrong to say that I'm hostile, even angry to God. Yet in my experience, and I speak from the experience of someone who wrestles at times, it does take the Holy Spirit 
to see my sin for what it really is. That sin isn't a violation of this rule or that rule of what you've done in this part of your life or that part of your life. But there's a whole attitude of hostility to the saving grace of the King Jesus in each one of our lives. I know that uh, what I'd say is this, if you find that difficult, is, is look, for example, at what a number of people have said. Is that amongst a lot of intellectual skepticism about taking that view, there is a genuine hostility towards God underneath all the words. So many times I've asked people when I've been on courses at different times before I was a vicar, I said, so let me ask you, you've got all these objections, all these thinking, all these other things against God. So I said, you know, occasionally I say, well, okay, let me see if I was the brightest person or I sat the brightest people in front of you and I answered every single one of your questions intellectually perfectly. Would you believe in Jesus? Ninety-odd percent of the times, the answer is no. The answer is no. Why? Why is it no? And the writer Aldous, Aldous Huxley said something really interesting, which I think gets to it. He was actually very honest. He said this. He said, I don't want the universe to have meaning. I wanted there not to be a God because I wanted to sleep with whoever I wanted to sleep with. I wanted to do with my life whatever I wanted to do with it, not what God wanted with it. Huxley had a great mind. He was a great philosopher. And actually, he was very honest. He was ultimately very honest. I don't want to lose control of my life. Why would I do that? I've got one life, one choice. I'll do with it what I want, thanks. I'm the owner. Now, I know one of the predominant views of the, our society is that all of us are good and that they're just differences that's all down to chance. It's a picture of a world without sin, which you don't need to be saved by a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of love. Yet Christians throughout the ages have always believed that we look honestly at the world, we look honestly at ourselves, but we see in that honesty of the condition of the world the supreme gift of Jesus Christ, who came to overcome sin, hell, and death, to overcome all the hostility in the world, so instead of being called enemies of God, we can be reconciled. We can be put at peace with our Creator through His death on the cross. The wisdom and beauty and the glory of the gospel is the very killing of the Son becomes the very means for our salvation and our eternal life. Ephesians 2.16 says, It says on the cross, God destroyed the hostility. Jesus on, on the cross defeated the hostility. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That's what Jesus did for you and I this morning. Jesus says the stone the bill has rejected became the cornerstone. Jesus is a stone on which you can either build your life or it will crush you. When the sun shows up in this parable, he's killed. So the owner will come and kill the tenants and lease the land to others, which is to the people listening at the time, showing that God's extending his promise beyond the people of Israel, extending his involvement and his blessing to all nations, to everybody, in the gift of Jesus. But judgment only comes when we fail to respond to God's compassion, his messages, his invitation to join his life. 
this morning our passage reminds us that Jesus Christ was willing to die for each one of us. He was willing to become an enemy even though he knew no sin, to be treated like an enemy, to be treated like he was guilty, so that we could experience his love and become his friends, fully forgiven, fully set free as the beautiful children of a loving Heavenly Father. This is wonderful news this morning. Will you listen to God's messengers and respond? God came to the vineyard looking for produce, looking for fruit, and what he got was hostility and grief. As God comes to our lives this morning, as God comes to my life, as God comes to your life this morning, he's looking for fruit and for faithfulness. He's coming to our church. Will you, will we respond? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask afresh, would you come by your Spirit and reveal yourself afresh to us this morning? Thank you that you, we come before a God who is patient and loving with me and with us. Thank you that you continue to send your messengers into our lives. Father, I ask this morning you would forgive us when we reject you and reject your messengers. This morning we offer ourselves afresh to you. You are the owner, we are the tenants, and we humble ourselves before you again. Continue to pray that we as a church, the vineyard of St. Swithin's, would be characterized by your glory, your word, and your fruit. A love for you, Jesus. Would you continue to pour your spirit out afresh upon us for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.